Amen. Love divine, all loves excelling. You may have noticed that in the New Testament reading we had an error in the scripture reference. I believe it that reading from the high priestly prayer actually began at verse 13. But at some point I was looking at the liturgy and I saw there was a little more room, so I added more of the high priestly prayer. I wanted us to bring to mind again this this point in Scripture where Christ is praying to the Father. The Son is praying to the Father. And He is telling Him of the work that He has done. That, that, and He's praying for the disciples. And He's praying for the church. And there's this intimacy, this familial intimacy, which is much of what Paul is explaining here to the Galatians. So, We turn our attention then to the reading of God's Word this morning, which comes from Galatians chapter 4, and we will be reading verses 1 through 7. Hear now the Word of the Lord. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be Lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the Father. Even so, we... When we were children, we're in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word and for these most encouraging words. We pray now that you would be pleased to pour out your Holy Spirit and power to attend the preaching and the hearing of your holy word. And this we do in Jesus' holy name. Amen. You may be seated. The message this morning is entitled, From Slavery to Sonship. And if you remember, we considered last week the wonderful truth that Paul wrote to the Galatians in chapter 3, verse 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Yes, we are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. When we believe savingly upon Christ, when we are baptized into Christ, and when we put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, bond or free, and there is no male and female. We become the seed of Father Abraham and heirs according to the promise given to him. A promise given by God the Father and fulfilled in God the Son. And as we are united to the Son, we are all sons of God. There is no distinction that would forbid or slight the Greek or the slave or the female. No matter our social status, ethnicity, or gender, anyone who is in Christ, who looks to Christ by faith, is a son of God and a son of Abraham. True sons who receive all of the benefits and privileges of a son who is in line to receive an inheritance. In the passage before us, Paul continues to expand upon 
these same themes, though he does so from a slightly different perspective. Paul focuses our attention here on the work of Christ and the many benefits that it brings, culminating in our adoption as God's sons. Verses 1 and 2. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he, is, though he be Lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the Father. Here it helps to know something about the Greco-Roman inheritance law, which seems to be what the apostle has in his mind. In those days, it was customary for a wealthy man to hand his heir over to the care of guardians. Throughout his childhood, the eldest son knew he would inherit his father's estate, but he did not own it yet. Riken points out that the ESV is somewhat misleading when it says that the child is the owner of everything. More accurately, the heir apparent is Lord of all, meaning that his father's land belongs to him by title, but not yet by actual possession. In the meantime, the heir has had about as much liberty as a common slave. He's had no legal or property rights. His guardian kept him under discipline. He was told when to wake up, when to go to school, what to wear, how to behave, and when to go to bed. He also had a trustee to manage his property, especially if his father was deceased. Until he came of age, he was called the young master. Master because one day he would inherit the estate, but young to keep him firmly in his place and to remind him that what lay ahead was some number of years until the tutors and guardians, under the tutors and guardians, before he would be released to govern the estate and all of its responsibilities on his own. Under this system, the young master sometimes felt more like a slave than a son, but it was all for his own good. What seemed at times like bondage was necessary to bring him to full maturity. Nor did his minority status last forever. Eventually, he received his inheritance according to the date legally established by his father. The point of Paul's analogy is that the law plays a similar role in the story salvation. Verse 3, even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. In the context of Galatians, what Paul is saying here is, this was our condition under the law. If we remain under the law, this is our lot. This is our life. There is no freedom. There is no true liberty, no true maturity. We remain in bondage to a guardian. We have an existence that differeth nothing from a servant. And we remain in this estate until the gospel comes and changes our status. When the Spirit breathes life into our dead souls and grants us faith to apprehend and indeed cling to the hope of the gospel and the light of truth, and hope floods the dungeon that holds us captive, loosing the chains and freeing our hearts to pursue Christ, then and only then do we breathe the sweet, fresh air of true freedom, no longer under the dread of condemnation for our sins. 
And I find this illustration most apt and helpful. I trust many of you have read Pilgrim's Progress, and in Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan describes a scene in which Christian enters the house of one called Interpreter, who represents the Holy Spirit. In this house, he has shown many profitable things, the first of which is a picture of a true minister of the gospel. The second thing shown to Christian is a dusty parlor, and this is the illustration I am referring to. And here from Pilgrim's Progress. The interpreter took him by the hand and led him into a very large parlor which was full of dust because it was never swept. After Christian had contemplated the scene for a little while, the interpreter called for a man to sweep the room. When he began to sweep, the dust started to so thickly swirl around the room that Christian began to be choked by it. Then interpreter said to a maiden who stood nearby, bring some water and sprinkle the room. After she had done this, the parlor was then swept and cleansed with ease. What does this mean, Christian inquired. The interpreter explained. This parlor is the heart of a man which has never been sanctified by the sweet grace of the gospel. The dust is his original sin and inward corruptions which have defiled the whole man. He who began to sweep at first is the law. The maiden who brought and sprinkled the water is the gospel. You saw that as soon as the man began to sweep, that the dust thickly swirled around the room, and even became, it even became more difficult to cleanse, nearly choking you to death. This is to show you that the law, instead of cleansing the heart from sin, does in fact arouse sin, giving greater strength to it and causing it to flourish in the soul. The law both manifests and forbids sin, but it has no power to subdue sin. Again, you saw the maiden sprinkle the room with water upon which it was cleansed with ease. This is to show you that when the gospel comes in and the sweet and precious influences thereof to the heart, then I say, even as you saw the maiden subdue the dust by the sprinkling the floor with water, just so is sin vanquished and subdued, and the soul made clean through faith, and consequently fit for the king of glory to inhabit. End quote. As children under the law, as our tutor, we were in bondage, for the law has no power to address sin in our lives. And as Paul warned the Colossians, now that we have the gospel of Christ, we are to see to it that no one takes us captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elements, elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. These elements of the world, these vain philosophies, empty deceits, and human traditions have no power to release us from our sin. They only have power to keep us in bondage. But as Paul is wont to remind his readers, God did not leave Israel in despair and without hope, as we see in verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. What brought God's people from slavery to sonship 
was the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We were under the law until the coming of Christ, which Paul describes so beautifully in these verses 4 and 5. In these two verses, as we take them phrase by phrase, we will see a, a six-fold outline of God's plan to save His chosen people and to bring them out of bondage. Here he re- reveals these six points about Christ's coming. One, the timing. Two, the origin. Third, the manner. Fourth, the condition. Fifth, the purpose. And sixth, the result. First, the timing. When the fullness of the time was come. Under the law, the father has the right to establish when his son should receive his inheritance. In like manner, God the father determined when God the son would come to give all God's children their inheritance. As Fesco puts it, when redemptive history was pregnant and ready to give birth to the Messiah, John the Baptist announced to the crowds that gathered around him, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel, Mark 1.15. With the advent of Christ, the fulfillment of the messianic expectation has come. Quote. Christ came when the world was ready for his coming. The Greeks had provided a common language and a common culture for sharing the gospel. The extent of the system of the Roman roads provided a ready means for the rapid spread of the gospel. Both Jew and Gentile sinners were ready to hear and receive the gospel in no release from their bondage. Christ came in the fullness of time. God stands over history as its ruler, having decreed all that takes place according to the counsel of His will. In His inscrutable wisdom, He chose exactly what would happen and when, sending His Messiah in the fullness of time. In other words, He sent His Son at just the right moment, at the perfect point for fulfilling His plan for the ages, And he worked in history to bring this to pass and to show his people when they could expect the Messiah. We should take great comfort in knowing that Christ came at just the right time in the fullness of time. And secondly, God sent forth his son, the origin. The fact that the son was sent by God, shows that He existed before He was born in Bethlehem. His sending, being from heaven, declares His divine nature. Jesus Christ is God the Son, fully equal to the Father in glory and might. His Sonship is eternal. He is the only begotten Son of the Father, the second person of the Trinity, who dwells with His Father in glory and in eternity. When the time had fully come, The eternally divine Son of God came down from heaven into the world, for in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In this short phrase, Paul declares the deity of Christ being sent from heaven by God the Father. And thirdly, the manner made of a woman. Whereas the word sent implies His eternal deity, The word made or born declares Christ's true humanity. Jesus was born of a woman in the ordinary manner. 
To say that a human mother gave him birth is to say that God the Son became a human being. This is the doctrine of the Incarnation. God became man. Paul here emphasizes the true humanity of Jesus Christ when he says that He was born of a woman. When Jesus was delivered of the Virgin Mary and laid in a manger, God the Son took on flesh and our nature with all of its temptations and griefs. When He was cut, He bled. When He was beaten, the bruises were visible and painful. The Christ who came to save is the God-man. He is one person in two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. In answer to the Westminster Shorter Catechism question 22, how did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? We read, Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to Himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and born of her, yet without sin. In order to save man, Christ became man. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. As John writes in his first epistle, this is so that our joy may be full. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye may also have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write unto you, that your joy may be full. Fourthly, the condition made under the law. Christ Jesus was made under the law, born under the law in order that He might fulfill all of the law. He was circumcised the eighth day as the law required. He never broke or bent one of the Ten Commandments. He worshipped God according to the scriptural requirements. He kept the feast. He did everything the law required and even died under the law. In His death, He took upon Himself the penalty that His people deserved, that we deserve as lawbreakers. This is what Paul was referring to back in chapter 3, verse 13, when he wrote, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. When Christ came under the law, He also came under its curse. He not only kept the whole law for His people, but He suffered the punishment due their sins. And the fifth point here is the purpose. To redeem them that were under the law. Here Paul is specifically referring to the atonement that Christ provided on the cross. In atoning for our sins, Christ satisfied the just penalty of the law that the law required for our sins. And in doing so, He purchased us to be His own. This is the meaning of redemption. In Paul's time, redemption ordinarily referred to the release of a slave by the payment of a price. If someone was willing to make the payment, a slave's freedom could be purchased. He could be redeemed. This is precisely what Christ did for His people. 
Christ paid the price for our freedom when He died on the cross. He paid the ultimate price. When God sent His Son, He sent Him to die. We have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace as we read in Ephesians 1. Riken also notes in his commentary that the death of Christ makes some people uncomfortable including some people who call themselves Christians. In the spring of 1999, for example, a Lutheran minister, a Lutheran pastor in Germany, gained notoriety by arguing that the manger and not the cross should be the symbol of Christianity. The cross, she said, is too threatening. It certainly is not as inviting as a baby Jesus asleep on the hay. Christ had to be born before He could die. There can be no Easter without Christmas. God the Son was born of the Virgin in order to die on the cross. Christ is not, Christianity is not primarily a religion of, of a stable and, and straw. It is a religion also of thorns and nail and wood and blood. The incarnation cannot save us without the crucifixion. Christ did not redeem us by His life alone. He redeemed us through His death and resurrection. What Christ redeemed us from is the law with its deadly curse. This is why it was necessary for Him to be born under the law. What qualified Him to redeem us from the law was the fact that He kept it perfectly. Indeed, everything Paul said about Christ's coming, His timely arrival... His eternal deity, His true humanity, and His perfect obedience qualified Him to be our Redeemer. As John Stott writes, So the divinity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, and the righteousness of Christ uniquely qualified Him to be man's Redeemer. If He had not been man, He could not have redeemed man. If He had not been a righteous man, He could not have redeemed unrighteous men. And if He had not been God's Son, He could not have redeemed men for God or made them the sons of God. But Christ did redeem us, and He did it as the perfect sacrifice. The Lamb of God without spot or blemish. And sixthly, the point is the result that we might receive the adoption of sons. Christ's coming had an adopting purpose as well as an atoning purpose. God sent His Son to make us all His sons. Christ accomplished our adoption as well as our redemption. It would be enough for God to release us from slavery, to rescue us from our captivity to the law, and so to redeem us from its curse. But God did not stop there. Once Christ had gained our freedom, He gathered us into His family, He went beyond redemption to adoption, turning slaves into sons. By making His children sons, God guaranteed that all His sons and daughters would be included in the inheritance. As slaves, we can strive to take on the appearance of a son, but it is external compliance only. It's superficial, but a true son is genuine. His sonship is intrinsic and irreplaceable. The slave, when he falters, can be replaced with a more capable slave. The son, however, is chastised, 
and forgiven and remains a part of the family. A good example of what this means in practical terms comes from the life of John Wesley. Before Wesley came to Christ, he was a better Christian than most believers, at least as far as his outward behavior was concerned. During his days at Oxford, he, along with his brother Charles, helped establish a group called the Holy Club. John Stott, in his commentary on Galatians, wrote this of Wesley. Wesley and his friends visited the inmates of the prisons and workhouses in Oxford. They took pity on the slum children of the city, providing them with food, clothing, and education. They observed Saturday as the Sabbath along with Sunday. They went to church and to Holy Communion. They gave alms. They searched the Scriptures. They fasted much and prayed. But they were bound in the fetters of their own religion. For they were trusting in themselves that they were righteous instead of putting their trust in Jesus Christ and Him crucified. A few years later, John Wesley, in his own words, came to trust in Christ, in Christ only, for salvation, and was given an inward assurance that his sins had been taken away. After this, looking back to his pre-conversion experience, he wrote, I had, even then, the faith of a servant, though not of a son. Christianity, my friends, is a religion of sons, not slaves. A Christian who is someone like Wesley who has been brought from slavery into sonship. Even after we become God's sons and daughters, we sometimes forget our Father's love. We start thinking of ourselves as slaves, rather than as sons, and this grieves the Father's heart. But how thankful we are that He has not left us alone. Verses 6 and 7. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. By the Father's grace, through the work of Christ, which is received by faith alone, God has sent His Holy Spirit into our hearts to bring about our adoption. And if we are adopted as God's sons, then we no longer know God as judge, but only as our Heavenly Father. And if we know God as our Father, then we can cry out to Him for our every need. Paul says we can cry, Abba, Father, a term of familial intimacy. God pours His Spirit into our hearts to give us the experience of being embraced within the family. The presence of this word Abba here is interesting. Right in the middle of an entirely Greek letter, Paul interrupts and we find this Aramaic word. Why does Paul use it? Transliterated in this Greek letter. The answer is that it was the way Jesus spoke to His Father. In Mark 14, 36, Jesus is in Gethsemane and prays, Abba, Father, all things are possible for You. Take this cup away from Me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what You will. 
Therefore, in adopting us, God gave us the very spirit of His Son and gives us the ability to feel the affections of belonging to the very family of God. When we speak to God, when we pray, and we address Him as Father, our hearts cry out, Papa. Praise God that He he gives us both legal standing as sons and the very spirit of His Son so that we can find ourselves saying from a heart of deep conviction, Abba, Father. Here in these last two verses, Paul is teaching the Galatians that they are no longer an inheritor who is a minor, under guardians and stewards awaiting their inheritance. And he does so in all the glory of the Trinitarian Godhead. The Father sent His Son and the Spirit of His Son so that even their future inheritance is a present possession. He is telling them, you are no longer a slave and no longer in bondage to the law. You are a son of your Father through His redemptive activity. You are an heir to all that was promised through Abraham of old. It is all of grace from first to last. Indeed, the Trinitarian structure of this passage serves to underscore the divine origin, accomplishment, and application of our redemption. And as we conclude this morning's message from this brief but rich bit of Scripture, where Paul helps the Galatians and us to understand the work of Christ that brings us from sonship, from slavery to sonship, I thought it would be helpful to consider some of the benefits of our adoption as sons. To contemplate all the privileges of communion with Christ would be, John Owen says, work for a man's whole life. And the highest of these, he continues, is adoption. Owens goes on to describe in extensive detail, as you might expect, four particular benefits of the grace of adoption. Liberty, title, boldness, and affliction. And this is but a brief summary of these four benefits. First, liberty. We enjoy the liberty of the children of God. We are set free from the hold of the old family. No longer is its influence dominant, even if we are not entirely free from its atmosphere and its influence. There is all the difference in the world between obeying the Father who has given His Son for us so that we can be sure His will is also to give us everything we need and being in bondage to the law, making our best efforts to keep it. As Wesley said, I had even then the faith of a servant, though not that of a son. Secondly, title. We have a new title. And as royal sons, we enjoy a feast of fat things, and not the least of these is found in the church, where we have the privilege of belonging to the family of God and being served by and in turn loving and serving its members. More than that, there is a sense in which that the whole world is ours to enjoy because it belongs to and is preserved by our Father. No child in this family can ever justly complain that his father has set up a restrictive 
regime without joy. At His right hand are pleasures forevermore. Do not be discouraged. You have a new title. Thirdly, boldness. As adopted sons, we experience boldness before the face of God. We pray with boldness. We seek God as those with rightful access. In Christ, we are as righteous as He is before God. We have the privilege of calling Him Abba, Father. We can ask anything in Jesus' name. What more could you possibly ask for? And the fourth is affliction. As adopted sons, we experience affliction. But for the child of God, affliction is always chastisement, the loving action of our Heavenly Father. This, as Owen points out, is precisely the burden of Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 11, and that which yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. It is one of the chief distinctions between Christians and unbelievers. The unbeliever seeks but does not find any ultimate meaning in his suffering. But not so with Christians. For Scripture teaches them that in Christ, trials have a goal. God is treating His people as sons by training them. Were He indifferent to us in our sin and in our waywardness, questions could rightly be raised about our legitimacy as sons. In this sense, all discipline is evidence of His love. More than that, suffering in the Christian life is the training ground of the soul. The Father is equipping His children through adversity. If our earthly fathers discipline us for our good, how much more will the Heavenly Father who knows His children through and through discipline us to our profit? My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged. Nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges, scourges every son whom he receives. Thanks be to God that we are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for the word which you have preserved and given to your people. We are humbled and filled with thanksgiving as we consider the amazing truth that we are indeed your sons and that we have been redeemed and set free. Grant, O Lord, that we would be faithful sons as we exercise the liberty, the title, and the boldness that attends our station and that we would receive with thanksgiving the chastening afflictions of this life, knowing that they are from your loving hand. You are so good, Father. We thank you that we have the liberty this morning to gather in the name of Christ and to look into your word and to sing your praises and to speak the truth. It is so encouraging to look out across this congregation and to see the number of people. We're thankful for the visitors we have in our midst and we pray for them. We pray for them, Father, that you would send them forth from this place encouraged and return them to their home or their next destination safely. And we pray all these things in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.